You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. I want you to go ahead and turn with me. Uh, and by the way, if you're a guest and you have a small baby with you, uh, we have a place. They're not bothering me. Jesus, I mean, they didn't have porta potties in Jesus' day. You know what I mean? So things got messy and loud when he was preaching. So I'm not Jesus, but uh, I can deal with the distractions. But if you if you feel like you need to get up, there's a place out in the hallway that's connected to the women's restroom. It's a little uh, feeding room there. You can lock the door and feed your child and watch the a live feed of this service. Just letting you know. All right. Turn with me again, hopefully for the last time in, for a while, to Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. If you're a guest with us today, then we're on the third part of a three-part uh, mini-series, really, on the prodigal son. And while you're turning there, let me just say that in the, in the game of chess, um, it all comes down to when the king on either side has has no moves left right if you if you tra- if you trap the king what do you declare he's getting a little feedback up here what do you declare checkmate right and then the game's over game's ends well there's a famous painting that was for some time in the louvre in in paris and uh it was painted by frederick moritz august reich uh and the painting was eventually came to be known as Checkmate, right? We have a picture of it here. And really on the left side, you see a depiction of, of the devil. That's who that's supposed to be in that picture. And he seems to have the upper hand on some poor unassuming soul on the right side, right? Kind of a creepy picture. <laughs> Actually, it's no longer in the Louvre. Someone, it's in a, someone's private collection now. And, and, uh, but it appears that Satan has won. Uh, but there's a story told of, uh, of a chess master who came on a tour through the Louvre and you know, they were looking at all these famous paintings of the Mona Lisa and so on and he passed this, this picture and he stopped and he couldn't take his eyes off the chessboard. Because for years, you know, the tradition had been, the long time interpretation was that uh, the painting was of the devil winning. But as he looked at the board, he realized something. <laughs> What is it? There's one move left. All right, now I don't know if there's any chess masters in here that want to prove that today, but I'll tell you this, it's Easter and our king has one move left, doesn't he? Amen. And we've been looking at a trilogy of parables, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son in Luke chapter 15. But there's a trilogy of sons in that final parable and by way of review uh, from parts one and two, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, the lost sheep was lost due to ignorance. The lost coin was lost due to careless neglect. The lost younger son was his own personal choice. And the lost, lost older son was out of pride and unforgiveness, right? And we've entitled the last three sermons, the story of three sons. And though Jesus never sinned, he is a lot like those other two sons in this. All three, younger son, the older son, and Jesus himself, who's telling this story, had one move left to make, right? And so I want us to read this 
passage today. And before we do, would you just do this? Take a deep breath. Breathe in through the nose, out through the mouth. All right. If you're alive and breathing today, you're not in checkmate. You understand that? You, you've got one move left. And here it is. This is a great story to draw from. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I'll arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home. Your, your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. And he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I want to ask Jim Camperdam to come and ask God's blessings on our service today. Jim. Yeah. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are here today just to praise you and worship you and glorify you and give thanks to this beautiful and wonderful Easter Sunday. You sent your son, Jesus, to be our savior. You gave us the scriptures so we will understand your message. Please, Lord, I pray that you use your word through went today so that we will understand. And we hope that your word will fill our hearts with joy in the Holy Spirit. Pray, Lord, that your message will keep our eyes on Jesus. And in the end, we will find everlasting love and life and eternity with you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We glorify you in your son Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Jim. All right, well, in the last two weeks, we've kind of zoomed in a bit on the circumstances of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost brothers, but now it's, it's 
Time to zoom in on the Father, right? So we're going to go back. We didn't read this, but we're going to go back to where all these parables begin to see why did Jesus even tell this story? Why did he say this, all right? Luke chapter 15, verse 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So the, the context of all three parables ending with the prodigal son story is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and scribes. And just so you know, Pharisees and scribes were kind of the, the high and mighty so-called followers of God who kind of condescended on all other humanity as if they were better, right? And so they're mad at him. They're angry with Jesus that these lost uh, sinful, some of the most wicked people in the world wanted to come and hear him teach. And he let them and he received them gladly. And so Jesus, in response to that, <laughs> their pride and arrogance, tells them these three parables. And we've highlighted each of the various characters over the last couple of weeks, but now we're going to run Luke 15 through the, the father filter. What were the circumstances of the father in this story? Now, there's five of these that I want to share with you today. The first is this. The father blesses his children with an inheritance. Luke 15, 12, and he divided the property between them, right? There was plenty. And by the way, the focus of this story has never been the lack of the father's resources, right? Now, the younger son was selfish about when he got those resources. I want them right now, dad. I want them now. Give it to me. But it's not like he wanted them now because he thought the father would run out. Right? Church, let me just ask you this. What do you think God doesn't have? Right? Because a lot of the efforts in our life are based on us not understanding what God has and what He can give us. Right? You think the Father's storehouses of blessings are empty? Well, you know, I've, man, I'm a, I'm, I've sinned a lot. So, I mean, He's used up a lot on me. You think He's going to run out? <laughs> Psalm 50 verse 10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine. This is God speaking. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. He don't need you. Now he desires you. <laughs> he desires a relationship with you. But he's not going to run out of anything. The father in this parable even says in verse 31, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. And the father in the parable is obviously a representation of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So church, hear this. Two things that the father told the son. You have the eternal gift, number one, of my presence. He said, you are always with me. You know, at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verse 20, he said, behold, I am with you always well, I don't feel like you're with me. Oh, well, I'm sorry. God's truth's not based on your feelings. <laughs> Romans 8, 39 explains that nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If, if you are a child of God, meaning you've called on the name of Jesus as your only means of forgiveness and eternal hope and eternal life, then you have the same gift that the Father in this parable was trying to explain to his son, his bitter son, and that is the eternal gift of God's presence. 750 years before Jesus incarnate came down in the virgin womb of Mary, 
750 years prior in the book of Isaiah, his name was prophesied to be Emmanuel, which in Matthew it's defined for us there. Emmanuel, God with us. You think if he named his own son with, that there might not be some intention in that? He desires to be with us. He desires to be present with you. Number two, you have access to everything I own. That's what the father said. Far more valuable, by the way, than just money. Friend, listen, every son, every soul has opportunity to respond and gain access to all God has. It's not limited except by our reply and possession. You can get a gift and not open it. Right. You may not you may have the gift, but not possess it. Right. Just because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills doesn't mean you're going to get them by osmosis. Right. Just because God's full of good things doesn't mean our reply has no bearing on receiving them. The eternal life that God gives us. We need faith. Forgiveness of sin. We need repentance. One scholar said the Pharisees and scribes had easy access to all the riches of God's truth. They spent their lives dealing with scripture and public worship, but they never really possessed any of the treasures enjoyed by the repentant sinner. But everyone has access. Mike Livingston explains that favoritism, according to Webster's dictionary, is the unfair practice of treating some people better than others. The Greek word translated favoritism in James chapter 2 literally means to receive according to the face. In other words, to show favoritism is to make judgments about people based on their outward appearance. Right? Y'all all look nice today. By the way, if you're a guest, I preach in shorts too. So this is about the dress, most dressed up you're going to see me all year. All right? So don't get scared. You're not going to want run out of uh, clothes to come to church here. All right? But... Three reasons favoritism is prohibited in Scripture. I just want to share these real quickly. Because it has a lot of bearing on you understanding why you get all of it. All right? You think. You may not think you think, but you do. There are times in your life you think someone else gets more than you because they're better than you. Because they're more righteous than you. Well, Elijah, he got whipped out on that chariot of fire because he must have been more holy. He was just as sinful as you, friend. The Bible says if you sin in one part, you sin in all. So the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen? So, number one, because it's inconsistent with God's character. Favoritism is inconsistent with God's character. Romans chapter 2, verse 11, for God shows no partiality. And I, there's a ton more verses about this, but I'm going to move quickly. Number two, favoritism is contrary to God's values. In a message on the, the evil of favoritism, um, uh, in the church, John MacArthur said, we tend to put, ourselves, uh, put everyone in some kind of stratified category, higher or lower than other people. It has to do with their looks. It has to do with their wardrobe. It has to do with the kind of car they drive, the kind of house they live in. Sometimes it has to do with their race. Sometimes it has to do with their social status. Sometimes with outward characteristics of personality. All of those things with God are non-issues. They are of no significance at all. They mean absolutely nothing to Him. Number three, favoritism is just plain sinful. James chapter two, verse nine says, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. God does not and has never and will never sin. It's the only way he could become the perfect sacrifice. Our father has granted to us full access to all his possessions. And I would say that eternal life, forgiveness of sins, everlasting peace and joy on this earth and in the next 
is a little more than a double portion that the firstborn son requires. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare. We kind of hold back, you know. You know, if we have guests over, we'll, let's, let's keep, I hide my desserts from my son every now and then, I confess. Yeah, I try to convince him to like this other dessert that I like less. Right? Chocolate fudge bars, right? You know, we all want to spare something, but not God. Romans 8.32 says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also, with Him, graciously give us all things? Number two, the Father allowed His children to run. Now, obviously, fathers of little kids, you don't want your let your kid run out in the street. Oh, now, you know, Timmy, stop, stop that now. Yeah, you go on and reason with them while they shouldn't be out in the street chasing the ball across the street. So obviously, you got to, you know, you got to stop them. But there comes a point in a child's life where a father allows them, maybe even when they're still young, to feel a little of the consequences of their bad decisions. Now. Prayerfully, that's in a safe environment, right? But you're not going to raise a man, a godly young man or a godly young woman without some of that tension. Do you all understand that? You helicopter parents understand that? Can I get an amen from the young people? Amen. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's the adults that are saying that amen because our moms still mother us, you know. I was telling someone before the service, my mom still cuts my pancakes and I'm 49 years old. <laughs> You think I'm kidding. My wife will testify. Hey, listen. That's not so hard to believe, y'all. Come on. I don't let her give me baths anymore. That'd be creepy. But... Hey, here's the deal. The difference is, the, you know, fathers on this earth are not perfect. But our Father in heaven is. And the, this parable, the Father is God. And He could, unlike me, he could stop even a rebellious adult from running. He could allow the effects of their own sin to catch up with them. He could allow the effects of this sinful fallen world, uh, disease, sickness, tragedies to catch up or maybe even end their lives. God can do that. That doesn't mean everyone that dies is because God has punished them. God's a jealous God. And he desires to take some of his children home. That doesn't mean we, we know every answer to all the questions of why bad things happen to what we perceive as good people. But God allows it. And we see two examples of this in the prodigal parable. First with the younger son when he wanted to bounce out and spend all his money. Luke 15, 13, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And the father allowed it. He could have stopped him, especially in that culture, but he didn't. Second, the older son, when he interrupted his dad's party for his brother, and Luke 15, 28 said, but he was angry and refused to go in. So what, what happens? Well, the father comes out and entreated him. I don't know what went on there. It says he entreated him. So there's a conversation that's not in the Bible, not in the parable, that went on before. You know, before. But the father tried to reason with his older son. He was gentle. He was kind. He said, Come on, son. Verse 31, son. Friend, let me just ask, let me just tell you this. If you've journeyed and you're 
if you feel like you're far from God, because maybe you never, you didn't grow up in a Christian home and you just don't know the Lord. You've never called on the name of the Lord for salvation. Or maybe, uh, you know, maybe you did. You've known Christ, but you've never made any kind of public profession of your faith. You've never followed the Lord in baptism. Or maybe you got all that nailed down. It's not so much that you're running from God as much as you're running to the recliner, right? On Sunday mornings especially, right? Or you're running to the lake or running to the ball games or running to anything but worship, right? And you've allowed all these things like COVID and excuse things, all these things build up to become excuses for us to just not get back in the habit of following God. And I'm not talking about whether you come to this church or not. I just mean your faith, all right? Being, being serious about things. It's easy to fall out of a habit. I know. I, when Vicki and I got married, I grew up in church every day. Every time the door was open, my mom's a secretary at a church across town for 40 years. <laughs> I eventually married my pastor's daughter. I know church. But when Vicki and I got married, man, I didn't want to go. I want to go to church. I go to walk in the doors of some of these churches. We moved down to New Albany, Mississippi, and I would go visit some of these country churches. I felt like I was walking into a cult. You know, wood panel walls and creepy people. You know what I mean? I mean, the guy that taught our Sunday school lesson, we were the only ones in there. I know they went and drug him out of the senior adult class. He had food on his tie. And uh, he just read straight from the lesson. I almost fell asleep. It was awful. It's torture. I know, I understand church, <laughs> right? And some of us have let those things become our excuse for not following after God. And I don't care. I really don't. I don't care where you've run or how far you've run because the parable says the younger son went to a far country. He didn't have to say that in the parable, but he made a point to say a far country. He was far away. Doesn't matter. What matters is that wherever you went, wherever you are, God allowed you to be. You may not like where you are. It doesn't mean that God desired you to be there, but he allowed it. And that's because number three, the father is waiting and wanting his children to come home. Church, listen, it's April. And it's all, God's all about returns. I ain't talking tax returns. Today we're celebrating his, his return from death. He's risen from the grave. And one day we're going to celebrate his return to earth to gather those who've called on the name of the Lord for salvation. But make no mistake, God wants us to return daily. And I'm not talking about just coming to him in faith initially. I'm talking about Christians who have left him, who've forgotten him, who are not prioritizing Christ in our lives. Uh, from the younger son we read in Luke 15, 20, while he was still a long way off, listen to this, his father saw him. You know what that means? It means he was looking. We don't know. We know it. It had to have been some lengthy time, but every day his dad was looking. He saw him a long way off. If you're a long way off, <laughs> he's, God sees you. From the older son, we read in Luke 15, 31, he gives him this in term of endearment. He says to him, son, he's pleading with him. Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're like, though they're like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Don't you want the good? 
The father did allow his son to leave, but he was waiting for his return. For the greatest words in my life are these four words. My father sees me. Can you say that right now? Can you just say that with me? My father sees me. And I'm not talking about earthly father. I'm talking about the father who created you, who breathed life into your lungs. Man and woman don't make a baby. They do make a baby. They don't make a soul. The soul of mankind is breathed in by the breath of God. God wasn't given mouth to mouth to Adam in the garden. He was breathing into him a soul to separate him from, from all the other beasts of the world. We have a soul. And your soul's immortal. It's either going to live for eternity in heaven or hell. Luke 15 verse 20 says, While he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Let me tell you something. God don't need no telescope to see you a long way off. He sees you. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All. John chapter 6 verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Romans 10 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Ezekiel 33 verse 11, say to them, as I live declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And house of Israel in the Old Testament just represents people who follow Christ in the New. Romans 2 verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Friend, let me just tell you. There was a time I was running as hard as I could from God. I'm telling you, there's not a sin on this planet I wouldn't commit. Don't you believe any, uh, any way different? I'm telling you. I'm a wicked, wretched man just like you. And I would have run as far from God as he let me, but I was showered with the overwhelming grace of God until I finally got on my knees before him and said, I'm done. I'm so tired of running from you. And I pray that's your heart today. Some of you have been just running so stubborn with the God who loves you. Hebrews 7, 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for you. The devil's always accusing the, the Lord, you. He's taking your name to the Father's throne and saying, you're not worth a nickel. And the whole time, God is always, according to his word, interceding before you, saying, no, this one's under the blood. And you can be there by calling on the name of Jesus and trusting in Him for your forgiveness. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. That's Jesus. And of this He has given assurance to all how did he give us assurance that he loves us? By raising him from the dead. 
That's your assurance. He's alive. He was seen by the disciples. He was seen by 500 other people. There's more biblical archaeological evidence about the Bible and Christ and his birth, death, and resurrection than any other person in the history of the world. Every facet of science and astronomy, it all points to him. Science, it's unbelievable. Rest assured, he wouldn't have died if he wasn't ready to save. He wouldn't waste his grace on nothing. The father blesses his children. He allows them to run. He's waiting and wanting their return. And fourth, the father's reflexes are love, not punishment. Hear this. Luke 15, verse 20. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Church, don't miss this. Before the father saw the son repent, before the father heard a word come out of the son's mouth, he saw that he was alive. Before he saw him repent, he saw him alive. Do you understand that? And that was enough. His love for us is never contingent on our righteousness. It's contingent on his. Yeah, amen. Now, we'll never know fully the effect of his love without repentance and faith. You don't go to heaven without them. But Christ's love for us exists before our repentance does. Just look at these babies. That baby, babe, the babies in here, they offer nothing to you. They can do nothing. Leave them somewhere, they will die without you. They're not appreciative. They don't do chores around the house. They have nothing to offer you. They are fully dependent on you as their parent. How is it different with God? He loves us unconditionally. He created the universe so that we would see this even in the life of a child and the relationship between the father and his child, mother and their child. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 1 John 4, 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. What's that big word mean? Big old church word. It just means satisfying the necessary legal and legitimate wrath of God. It's satisfied. The wrath of God that needed to be poured out on me has now been propitiated. It's satisfied. Paul says of himself in 1 Timothy 1.16, and I say this of myself, but I have received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Like if God can save that prodigal son knucklehead, if God can save Paul who was murdering Christians, I might have a chance. The Father blesses us. He allows us to run while watching for our return so that he can love us with his perfect love that only he can give. And fifth and finally, I'll close with this. The Father interrupts our sin to bless us with his very best. Listen, the prodigal's father runs. He runs to embrace his rebel son. And he kisses him before the son even knows what's happening. But remember, that son is undaunted. He's, uh, he is focused. He's been rehearsing it in his head. He's been thinking about what he wanted to say to his dad. What was he going to say? Luke 15, verse 21. 
Even though the, the, the dad's jumping all over him, hugging him, kissing him, he's happy that he's home. He's like, no, I got to say something. I got to say this. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just hold up a minute. Stop with all the hugs and stuff. I just cannot imagine the weight that was lifted off his chest when that happened. Hey friend, actually, I don't have to imagine it. I remember it. I remember, <laughs> I remember daily actually confessing my sins to God, but I remember the moment of calling on the Lord for salvation. I still know the joy of saying those words. I've sinned, I've sinned, Lord. Would you forgive me? Would you save me? Would you rescue me? And I'm going to tell you, friend, you can say those same words. The same, <laughs> the same freeing grace that was available to the young son, right, is available to us. What does his dad do? He almost appears to interrupt him mid-sentence. Listen, Luke 15, 22. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. A pastor by the name of Haddon Robinson says, with him the calf is always the fatted calf. The robe is always the best robe. The joy is unspeakable. The peace passes understanding. There's no grudging in God's goodness. He doesn't measure his goodness by drops like a druggist filling a prescription. It comes to us in floods. If only we recognize the lavish abundance of his gifts, what a difference it would make in our lives. If every meal were taken as a gift from his hand, it would almost be a sacrament. May God give us fresh realization of the overwhelming abundance he provides. Indeed, our cup overflows. Church, there's a ton of lessons to learn from this parable. But did you know the main, 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 main focus of all three of the, of the lost parables? There's three parables there ending with the prodigal son. And the point, the main point of all of them is the joy that the father has in someone coming home. It's joy. Dr. Vincent says there's three sons in the story. One wandered but was found. One stayed at home but was lost. And one told the story. And a few days later he died so that our sins could be forgiven. But praise be to God. He had one move left. The resurrection. Today we're celebrating checkmate. Amen? I'm going to call it that next year. I'm going to say happy checkmate. That's what my new word for Easter is. That just came to me, Jimmy, just, just right now. Luke 4, 15, 32, the father says, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad. Hey, friend, listen. Come on home and let the celebrations begin. Take the next move. This has been sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.